Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening. Today we're speaking with Sid, founder and CEO of Arbol, a climate risk management platform that's raised over 20 million in funding. Sid, thanks for chatting with me today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we dive deeper into what you're building today, can we just begin with a quick summary of who you are and a little bit more about your background? Yeah, so I have a very varied and uh, you know eclectic background in some ways. I was born in India and I spent my first few years of my life around the national parks there. Uh, my father was in the forest department and I lived uh, all over the so- southern part of the country, you know, next to national parks, tea gardens, and really got, you know, my initial love for the environment, for forests uh, from there. Next few years was in the capital in Delhi. And then uh, we moved here to the U.S. when I was around 11. And it was uh, a very classic uh, immigrant story, you know, uh, leaving your home country behind, coming here and, you know, working on, you know, sort of building our family here. And, uh, you know, went to high school outside of Boston, was very interesting cultural difference from coming from India and then going to middle school and high school here, and then went to Harvard University from there. So over time, I've collected, you know, very varied backgrounds, very different places I've lived in. And after Harvard, you know, I went to Wall Street, which was a very, you know, well-trodden path at the time. I spent some time in interest rates and then really got interested in commodities. And, uh, you know, when you think about commodities, it's oil and gas, it's corn and beans, uh, livestock, uh, metals. I love the variety of it. I love the physical aspect of it. It's not as, uh, it's not just an abstract set of numbers, it is so tied to the real world, how we get food on our plates, how we get gasoline in our cars. And I spent the next 10 years in the commodities market in different sorts of roles. And, uh, you know, my sort of academic background has always been mathematical. I was applied math and stats, bachelor's and master's in college. And so my career as well has been this mix of understanding these markets as well as bringing quantitative tools to understand them better. Wow. Sounds like that's been an incredible journey. Now, two questions we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder, entrepreneur, and leader. First one is what CEO do you admire the most and and what do you admire about them? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And so I'm an avid student of history, even though I did math as my, uh, you know, academic focus. On the side, uh, history has always captivated me. And one of the founders, if you will, that I have great admiration for is Henry Ford. And when you think about, you know, what it is about Henry Ford that's unique, it's, of course, you know, he set up the assembly line. That's what you'll hear people say. And, you know, he set up Ford Motor Company and it was a lot of different innovations at the time, like paying much higher wages to his workers than was the norm basically building a customer base while building cars. But one of the sort of conceptual things that I really liked about uh, reading his story was that 
he really spent the time building pieces, you know, for producing a much greater number of cars later on. So while he had a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of kind of cottage industry of car making coming up. And most of those guys spent, you know, lots of time building each car from scratch. So they would produce one car, it would just maybe take whatever time, a few weeks or something like that. He didn't take that route. He spent a lot of time building the factories, building all the pieces in place, putting every single component in place while producing no cars. But once he was ready, he could produce multiple cars in a day. And to me, that's always been something I really focus on. It's been a very big focus for Arbol as well. Instead of just going for the immediate business, how do we put the pieces in place to have a process that can then really change the system? And that's what I always try to aim for as well. And so I always love the stories of where it's about almost being patient about, you know, how you set something up rather than chasing the immediate revenue. And, you know, we've seen similar sort of things with uh, Amazon and many other companies, but it's really that concept of put the right pieces in place to then build a whole new platform, a whole new system. And that's far more impactful than getting the revenue today. Nice. I love that. That's such a good example. And it's not a founder we really hear a lot of people talk about. Typically, when we ask that question, it, you know, people are just repeating the same big tech CEOs or big tech founders that you know, everyone can list off. So it's always fun talking about these more old school entrepreneurs. Yeah, as I said, I love history and there's a lot of lessons we can learn from all sorts of historical figures. Have you watched the documentary series, The Men Who Built America? I watched some of it, yes. Yeah, I just watched that recently and they had a, one of them was dedicated to Henry Ford and it's a, definitely a fascinating entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. Now let's talk about books. Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? And this can be a business book or a personal book that influenced how you view the world. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a tough one. You know, I do like to read quite a bit uh, different topics. So one of them continuing on the Henry Ford theme is The Tao of Capital by Mark Spitznagel, who himself is a you know, very interesting trader and uh, you know, has an interesting approach to markets. But the Dow of Capital kind of talks about this, what I just talked about with Ford, but in even more sort of examples and concepts around this idea that to achieve a global maximum, to achieve sort of a higher peak, you have to make sure you don't get stuck on the lower peak, right? You have to sometimes go in troughs to climb higher in, in peaks that might be higher. And so this concept of, and he has a really interesting examples from all sorts of things, like even nature, right? Like you think about how there are trees that wait for a forest fire and then they really blossom. And it's this concept that the way you really invest capital, the way you think about investing and building a business is around finding these patient opportunities but, and finding arenas where people don't want to, you know, really sort of go into and thinking about why they don't want to go into it. What are the barriers? And often the barrier is that people want quick wins. And that's something Buffett always talks about, right? Like the biggest problem is that people want to get rich quick. But this is a sort of a common theme is this idea of how do you optimize any sort of process in life? And often it is not about optimizing the immediate next step. It is about optimizing over time. 
And that may require you to take a step back. And, you know, I've had this in my personal career, for example, giving up that Wall Street career to start Arbol was a big, you know, personal financial hit for a while. Why? Because, of course, you, you're not going to be able to match the same, you know, thing as an entrepreneur in the early days versus what uh, compensation might be on Wall Street. You have similar stories of a lot of different people who have to basically take a few steps backward to then aim for something higher up later on. Of course, you have to get lucky. Things have to work out. But that's kind of this concept around the book. And uh, it was a very memorable and uh, impactful book in that way. And can you talk me through your mindset when you left Wall Street for a startup? Was that you know, very difficult for you to do what was going on inside your head? And did you have, you know, family, friends asking you if you were crazy and had and lost your mind? Or how are you navigating those conversations? <laughs> so, yeah, it was very difficult. So I had spent about 15 years, you know, building a career, working at different institutions, you know, as you do, and you, you're getting more and more senior. And then to abandon all of that and to start something new is very difficult. But I was always lucky to have a very supportive group of people around me. For example, my wife has always been very, very supportive of starting a new business and, you know, really kind of taking that risk. And that was very helpful to have that support around me to give me the courage, if you will, because it is quite scary because you're leaving the networks you have built. You're, it's not just about uh, the financial aspect. You know, once you're 15 years into a career in one industry, you know a lot of people, you have a network you can like, you know, fall back on. If something doesn't work out, it's kind of easy to navigate that. To leave that behind and to then start something new in a new industry like insurance, which has some links to the old one, but really a whole new set of people, a whole new set of ways you do things, whole new set of processes that you have to learn on the fly. So that was definitely very scary. But I also had this recurring feeling that there was an opportunity here precisely because the finance world and the insurance world doesn't really connect too much. But when you look at what Arbol does, it's really about connecting those at a very conceptual level. And I felt I was in a good position to try to make that happen. Not easy at all, but to try at least. Uh, because I had obvious experience in commodities, which are big weather and climate related markets. But I had also been involved in blockchain, you know, been involved in the satellite space. And there was a number of different experiences I had that you know, that's what I liked about Arbol was to bring together all these different threads of my experience into one effort. And that's what gave me some inkling that, hey, this could work. By no means was it guaranteed this, you know, it's always a low probability event when you start. But, you know, one of the things that throughout my career I had always strived to do was not just go to the job and come back, really try to on the, on the side learn new technologies, new things that were coming up. And that helped a lot in bringing all the pieces together for Arbol to happen. Well, I think that's the perfect segue for us to talk a bit more about Arbol. So take us back to day zero or day one or the days leading up to the start of Arbol. What is that origin story? Well, the days leading up to it was really about, okay, so I have no idea how to start a company. I have no idea what it even like requires because I had been um, 
an employee for all of my career. I was not an entrepreneur before that. So first it was, let's just figure out what it is you need in terms of the basic mechanics, like, okay, even forming a corporation and all these other kind of more mechanical things. But then the big thing was, how do we think about the opportunity here in detail, right? You can have an idea, but then can I write a business plan? Can I write a business plan? And I got a lot of uh, really good input from the people around me on this, without whom it would have been very difficult. It was to really make things concrete. So instead of the grand idea, the overall vision, which is important, how do we get the first 100,000, first million dollars of revenue? What is it that we have to do? Where is the market opportunity? Why would a new product work? Am I even displacing existing products or am I selling something that's totally new to most of these customers? Which customers are the low-hanging fruit? When you think about what Arbol does, which is, okay, climate insurance as a very broad term, well, you know, almost every industry on the planet is affected by climate. It could be an oil rig that's facing possible hurricane. It could be a ski resort facing a warming winter with no snow. So the applications are endless, but really the work is in figuring out where is the low-hanging fruit, which segments, which sub-segments, as specific as you can get, you know, would buy your product and be willing to pay for it. And the extra tough thing with something like insurance or a financial product is we are not selling a physical product. So when a customer pays us, it's extra difficult because they may not get any benefit out of it, right? They pay premium and then let's say the weather is great, but they didn't get anything out of it. So how do you conquer that mindset that this is not just a gamble, this is necessary for your risk management? So there was a lot of that kind of work and obviously like networking as much as we could, you know, bringing together different networks of our team members, uh, bringing together the team was a big one. You know, this was not a possible as a one person company. There's just too much complexity with regulatory, with uh, analytics, pricing, actual platform building you know, niche knowledge about derivatives and insurance, all these things. So I was lucky enough to have a great team that coalesced early and we're very dedicated. We all worked uh, without salary for, you know, a year and change. And, you know, it was about getting this thing to the finish line without any distractions. And as you brought this to the finish line, what were some of those hardest moments? Can you recall any specific times when it just felt like it could be impossible or things just got very difficult? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's like so many of those. It's <laughs> it's really hard to like list them all. But going back to the fact that you're selling a financial product, the first thing is, well, it's extremely uh, regulated, this kind of stuff, right? You can't just up and start selling insurance. So you have to first find out how do I kind of even get the first transactions going what do I need to do in terms of licensing and the correct regulatory stuff? And each jurisdiction is different and all these different things. And you don't want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars getting all the licenses before you even know what the market is. So, you know, I remember it taking almost six months to arrange the first transaction, which was a grand total of $3,000 in gross revenue. And it was good to get the first thing done, but it also was deflating that this was this much work for $3,000 of gross revenue. 
But you learned a lot through that process. Like, how do you streamline? What are the kind of types of things that we spent extra time on? Then I remember we also put in an application for a government program, and it was over a year's worth of work, hundreds of pages we put together. We got to the final, final stage, and then it was rejected. And we went to Washington, D.C., and it was a final meeting, and you know it looked like it was going to happen, but then it didn't. So things like that happen all the time. And this is why it was, uh, you know, it's a cliche to say, you know, you, you fall and you bounce back easier, much, much easier said than done. One of the things that is truly hard to convey is how often your early efforts fail, partly because you don't know the full info. You haven't been in these things for a while, but partly because you're just smaller and, you know, you don't have the staffing. You don't have the resources to put to bear on a lot of this stuff. So you try 20 things, 30 things, all try to be cohesive. You're not trying to just do 20 random you know, projects. They should be cohesive. They should be along the same kind of theme. But you have to put a lot of threads out there so that because you know 19 out of 20 of them will likely not get anywhere, and especially in these industries that are dominated by huge players, it's difficult to even get a conversation at the early stages. It's difficult to set up a meeting. And what happens is you get stuck in the bureaucracy because you don't have the size and the clout to be able to, you know, sort of break through these barriers. And in terms of breaking through those barriers, are there any numbers that you can share with us that just highlight you know, how successful you've been there and the growth and traction that you've seen so far? Yeah, so when I said at $3,000 in gross revenue, that was 2019. In 2020, we did about a couple million. In 2021, we did 70, 70. And in 2022, we closed out with 170, 170 million of gross revenue. So things have grown very rapidly. It's really because we've started to unlock a lot of areas of the market which have a growing need for climate coverage. And they're not being, they're being underserved or not being served at all by the traditional markets. What are some examples of those markets? Can you share? And why do you think that no one's really focused on them? Yeah. So some examples are, for example, agribusinesses. A lot of stuff we do is focused on supply chain coverage, for example. So imagine you have a cotton gin or an ethanol plant in the agricultural sector. You know, they need coverage if the local crop fails but the insurance industry doesn't provide those services because the way insurance works is you have damage, some guy comes to your farm or business and uh, makes a subjective assessment. And that process is filled with delays, disputes, and sometimes fraud. And so if you're a business, you, it can take you sometimes a year plus to collect your insurance check. And after a climate disaster, you may go bankrupt by, while you're waiting for your insurance check. That's how the traditional insurance model works. What we do is with data, right? So the payouts are linked to data. That's what parametric insurance is. So it could be crop yield data. It could be wind speed data. It could be temperature data. If it's too hot for 20 days in a row, here's your payment. No ambiguity. You know, the payout is one week after the data comes out and you're done. And so what this does is it transforms the way that the whole insurance model works. And so imagine a power plant. Think of like what climate risks they, must, they are sitting on. So if suddenly there's a heat wave, 
they have to supply their customers, homes and businesses who are now running a lot more air conditioning, but they only generate a certain amount of power. So now they have to buy power to meet that difference to keep up with their supply contracts. In a heat wave, power prices can be 10 times higher, 20 times higher than regular times because everyone is running more air conditioning. So they can buy a temperature contract from us and get paid to make up that difference. So if there's a heat wave, they get the payout and they can use that money to make up the loss from buying you know, electricity in the regular markets. That's just one example. We do a lot of stuff around hurricanes. We do wind speed for wind farms. So imagine you run a wind farm. If suddenly for the next two, three weeks, wind speeds are very low, now you're going to have a revenue shortfall. And you have lenders, you have banks who don't like that volatility, who don't like revenues going up and down based on wind speed. So we can sell you a wind speed insurance or a wind speed contract to keep your revenues stable. And that helps you get a lower cost of capital at the bank. That helps you to keep your loan costs low. So there's a myriad examples here of different industries facing climate risks. And, you know, we started out with a focus on energy and agriculture. And now we work with insurance companies as well on climate risks that may be sitting on like their home insurance portfolio, like from hurricanes. You know, you can imagine like hotels and many others are faced with different climate risks, like too much rain in the summer or hurricanes again. So we're expanding into different industries. But I would say that the big ones so far have been agriculture, energy, and the insurance sector itself. And can I ask, what role does blockchain play in all of this? Yeah, so Arbol is unusual in many ways. Like, we weren't insurance guys, the original core group. And the original vision was a peer-to-peer insurance marketplace where a smart contract would read the data and determine the payout to the customer. And it would read the data from like a decentralized open source network. And that's what our white paper was way back in 2018. And these smart contracts at the time, you know, it was ERC-721s. Now they're called NFTs. Basic idea being the same. You have code that executes, right? So some of it was not feasible from a regulatory standpoint, some of that vision, though we continue to move towards it. But what was feasible was, okay, let's build a big open source data network that will enable teams from all over the world to contribute data, to contribute uh, models without needing to go through intermediaries. And of course, we have lots of big agencies and government institutions and all who also have a lot of climate data that can be used to make contracts. And then behind the scenes in Arbol, the entire process can be automated. So Once a customer does a transaction, let's say we go back to a power utility, you get paid if, uh, you know, in July, if 10 days are above 90 degrees. Let's just call that a simple contract. The smart contract will be monitoring the temperature data. And then if we hit the trigger, it says, hey, pay this customer this much. At this stage, what it does is it adds tremendous amount of efficiency in the background, right? Like when you think about how much staffing an insurance company needs just to for the claims process, for the payouts process, we have it almost entirely automated. And so that keeps costs low for customers. It again helps us grow the market. Now, as our contracts get more complicated, like when you have, let's say, a contract with an insurance company 
And it's not on one like weather station, but it's on, you know, 300,000 different points for every single home they might have insured. This now creates even more scale for something like blockchain, where it's really about having a shared ledger and different parties who may not trust each other to agree on that source of truth, i.e. how much the payout should be to each customer. When you think of an insurance contract, there are probably seven plus intermediaries involved in many of them, from the brokers to the agents, to the insurance company, to us, to, you know, the risk capital provider, reinsurer, there might be multiple reinsurers. It's, it's quite complicated. Where blockchain can excel is by having this shared source of truth where everybody can agree on what the payouts were without any one party controlling the data or the calculations. And so that's sort of the, you know, we were working towards that. And by later this year, we'll have some really exciting stuff along those lines. We have just been quietly building a blockchain insurance ecosystem over the past four or five years. And when I think about the blockchain market, it's unfortunately... There's a lot of distractions around the crypto side of it and things like that. But what I see is in the background, there's a lot of interesting things being built at different entities. And we are one of them where we are now at this point, we have the longest background in the blockchain insurance side to be building solutions that actually are needed rather than being a a solution looking for a problem because we have seen what's needed in this market. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, solutions that are needed, as I was doing research for this call, I was obviously going through your website. First, I just have to say you guys have done an incredible job on your messaging. It's so clear and crisp what you're doing. But what really surprised me was I didn't see the word blockchain on every single part of the website. (laughs) I'm uh, very different from, I think, the approach that many other startups in this space follow where it's blockchain, 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 blockchain. It's really like the core of their message. But from my experience, buyers don't really give a crap about the technology necessarily. They care about you know the benefits that technology can bring. So for you, does blockchain really come up a lot in those conversations? Like, do you talk about it as a you know feature or a future feature that's going to be rolled out eventually? Or do the buyers not even really care about how things happen? They just care about those benefits. It's exactly what you said. The buyer does not care. And we never talk, unless it's a buyer specifically interested in that aspect of it, we don't really talk about it because for us, it's more important to make sure the customer pays premium and then gets what he or she expects for that premium, that when there's a climate event, they get paid. They really don't care how it happens. And this was something we were very, very clear on from day one, that blockchain is just another tool to get you know, efficiencies and transparency into this market that desperately needs it. If you look at our tech stack, blockchain is one aspect of it. I would say our artificial intelligence is another one that we don't talk as much about, but our entire underwriting is AI-based and we account for hundreds of millions of inputs to assess where, you know, weather might be headed over the next few months in different parts of the world. And by weather, I mean, it could be assessing where temperatures might be going to or, or rainfall or soil moisture or ocean water temps, et cetera, et cetera. So what I see Arbol's tech prowess being, it's not on any one of these tools. It's how they all come together. And that's why we don't fixate on the blockchain aspect. We don't see it as a fundraising tool. We actually see it as a tech tool. 
And my view has always been, let's build, let's build well, let's show that this is actually necessary. And once you build something well, and it comes out in the market and customers really like it, then it'll have proven itself. We don't need to have any marketing around it. So that's how we approach all of these tech tools and certainly blockchain as well. And, you know, we have really, you know, stayed away from a lot of the hype that kind of tends to saturate the blockchain space. Yeah, I didn't see chat GPT anywhere on this website. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We, we have talked about whether it could be useful for our customers to be a structuring tool, like you tell it, uh, you know, what weather risks you're worried about. And we have a lot of products for a lot of different weather risks. But again, we would only talk about it if we actually see customers loving it and like actually using it rather than it becoming, yes, yet another, you know, hype uh, tool for fundraising. <laughs> well, I think there's many founders and many companies out there that can learn from you. So I hope they hear this episode and, and take some of your advice there because you guys are, are really just doing an incredible job there. Now, to wrap up the interview, I know on the website, it says the future of climate risk management. So we'll talk about that in a second. But before we do, can you just describe to us What's the state of climate risk management today? You know, what is the status quo? What does that market look like? Yeah, it's in its infancy, just to put it very, very simply. So where we are is when we started Arbol, there was discussions around climate risk and climate change. And, you know, and then sometimes the thing is that a lot of these things get conflated. And one thing we are very clear on that, you know, we're not making any sort of political statement either. The, issue is that regardless of your views on the causes of these things and what's actually happening, the data shows that the loss amounts are growing rapidly. More than that, you know, different industries are now starting to see how vulnerable their supply chains, their businesses can be with climate stuff that can happen around the world, right? So when you think about, for example, there was a flood in Thailand that really had a huge impact on auto part supply chains. There was a drought in Taiwan that had a huge impact on the semiconductor chip sector because those factories, are a lot of them are in Taiwan and then use up a lot of water. So if you are a company that relies on that for your supply chain, you don't need to have business in those countries or those parts of the world to be impacted. And the list goes on and on. I can I trade a lot in the energy markets, for example. The energy supply chains are extremely fragile in many ways, right? You can have a drought in China that reduces their hydroelectric production, that then need, they need more gas shipped from liquefied natural gas. Now, Europe's going to be short. And, you know, when the Texas freeze happened, the freeze event, I think, uh, 2021, you had multiple utilities either on the verge of bankruptcy or go bankrupt because power prices went from $30 to 9000 There's a lot of interconnections now in these industries and any sort of climate event, seasonal weather event that happens in one part of the world can have cascading effects. So when it comes to climate risk management, people are only starting to now understand these linkages and that the you know sort of stakes are a lot higher too because things are a lot more interlinked. And at the same time, there's a lot more pressure from investors, from regulators to 
assess climate risk. And so that's the phase we are in. You'll see a lot of companies are working on assessing what their climate risk is. You have central banks like the Fed here in the U.S. is going to be stress testing bank loan portfolios for climate risk. What does that mean? Well, if you have a million farm loans in the Midwest or a million mortgages in Florida, you are carrying drought risk on the farm loan side and you're carrying hurricane and flood risk on the mortgage side. Well, in the past, that was just risk that was taken as, okay, well, it's just an act of God or whatever. It's just going to be something we can't uh, do anything about. That's not true anymore. And companies like Arbol make it possible for you to also insure that away. And now there's more and more pressure from regulators and others to measure and analyze this and soon to start insuring it. So we're sort of at this stage where a lot of companies are starting to explore how much climate risk they have and then how do they deal with it. And as this process evolves, as this industry starts to really grow, we want to be there to help customers offset that risk. And if we zoom out into the future here, what excites you most about the vision and and everything that you're building? What's really interesting here is that we are in the process of creating a whole new asset class at a scale that has not been done before. So when you think about what Arbol is doing, it's really about connecting two very different groups together in a platform. So one group, the clients, are the ones who need the climate insurance. Again, that could be a small farm. It could be a seaside restaurant worried about too much rain during the summer hurting their business. Or it could be a mega energy company that has ports all over you know, the U.S. and worried about the hurricane season. Or it could be a bank looking at, okay, well, I have like a million mortgages in the Southeast. What's the flood risk look like and can I insure that? So the whole scale of it. And that's what's fascinating is we, we get to work with such an amazing variety of clients from the large to the small. On the other side is the question of, okay, but it's all great to have the product, but how do we write this insurance? Who's going to make these payments? And on that front, is the other exciting part is there's a lot of capital that wants to invest in uncorrelated markets. What do I mean by that? Markets that don't just go up and down with the stock market or the Federal Reserve. Well, these are excellent examples of that. Wind speed in Texas or, you know, a heat wave in Paris or typhoon risk in Hong Kong. None of that is linked to the stock or bond markets. So you're opening up a whole new asset class for the investor side to bring new fresh capital in because the insurance industry does not have enough capital to meet the challenges. You have $200 billion of annual climate losses now, and over half of it is uncovered by insurance. Partly that's because the old model of you know subjective loss assessment doesn't work, but partly it's because there's just not enough capital that the insurance industry can bring to bear to cover these damages. But there's a lot of capital outside the insurance industry that's really looking for you know, interesting opportunities. So what I think about the three-year vision is really to bring together a growing number of industries on one side and growing number of capital providers from all types of different capital pools to fund these insurance products. And us in the middle you know, utilizing blockchain, utilizing artificial intelligence, utilizing the best technologies and data sets to 
have a vast array of products for different use cases. Super exciting. And I could probably keep you on for another three hours and ask you more questions about this. But unfortunately, we are up on time, Sid. So we will have to wrap here. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? Our website, uh, arable.io. And then um, our social channels are there. Twitter, LinkedIn, we are quite active on those. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story and really talk about the vision and everything that you're building. This is incredibly exciting and hope to have you back on in a couple of years to uh, talk further about all this and talk about all the progress you've made. Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure. Take care.